This was brought to us by one of the members of the EliteBaseball.tv site. And this probably goes back, man, almost 15 years now. Uh, the linear versus rotational debate. And it, a real easy way to think of this is these are marketing terms. And generally, especially at this time when Epstein hitting was one of the few that was mass marketed nationally, it's trying to put your claws into something that you can standardize, scale, and make a lot of money on, which I think he probably did a really good job of. But to say that there is one answer for the linear versus rotational debate is, of course, hogwash, and it is just pure uh, marketing. Because if you think about it, one of the ways in which the body creates stretch and takes slack out of the system is the positive forward move. And you can really say that the stride is a large po portion, if not the largest portion of the loading mechanism, because we're creating stretch between a forward advance and resistance in the upper body against that forward advance. So we'll stop there for a second before I get into further into the debate. So what, when I have taught the, that forward advance in the upper body scap load, I compare the scap load to having my hands on the handle of the bat in thinking of that as, a, as an old school handbrake on your 1974 Pinto. So the handbrake is designed to pull back and create some sort of resistance slowing down mechanism to the lower body's advance. As the lower body gains ground, it wants to do so by um, adding momentum, thus velocity. And we're trying to slow that forward advance down by resisting the upper body. So we got a tug of war going and that creates stretch and takes slack out of the system. So that is your positive forward move, even a no stride hitter. And I used to be a Cardinals fan and really enjoy the Albert Pujols, Jim Edmonds, Scott Rowland days. And Jim Edmonds was a no stride hitter, but even in a no stride hitter, they are not stationary and spinning. There is still movement forward in the center of mass. So you watch Jim Edmonds go from his loading mechanism to his positive move, you're gonna see his belly button gain ground. So every hitter in the history of baseball has a linear move. That linear move tends to end when we get into rotation and the body is turning. So no matter how much you try not to turn, there is some rotation. Now, albeit you can do some things that will limit rotation by blocking your front side. But if I'm starting my chest facing home plate and my chest ends up facing either, uh, you know, the opposite field or as far as it's going to go is usually the, the pitcher by contact, you are rotating. The body is making a turn. So an easy way to think about this, there are both moves in the swing. Now, when we describe rotational hitters now, it's with a caveat of that's, that's not a necessarily a good thing. Because while the body is turning, we are trying to stop or limit rotation as quickly and as abruptly as possible, while at the same time getting as much turn speed as we can that the body can stabilize and stop. And that ends up turning that rotational move back into a linear path of the bat. So if I want good distance in the zone, I want the barrel to stay in a big hitting window. The better job I can do at stopping rotation, the more linear my hand path becomes and it doesn't get as east and west cutting out of the zone or off my front side. So what I would say here, Travis, this is a, a long winded 
monologue into today's show, you go from linear to rotational and then back to linear again, hopefully. And I haven't really described it that way, but as we, we've talked about it right there, it just kind of comes to mind. That's so much of what we do with older hitters, um, you know, professionals or, or people that are really high level is working on putting on the brakes and stopping rotation, become linear again in your path and give you a better chance to time up the ball. Thoughts? Yeah. So I would say like in my mind, like a simplified, a simplified version is in the advance we are moving, obviously most people are, are striding. So most people are moving linear, trying to resist rotation. So basically not over rotate as we're moving forward. And then we are essentially trying to get to that point where we're going to rotate. And then we're trying to like resist linear, but become rotational. Then we want to fire the bat. We want to basically cease rotational and get back to linear. So throwing is, is essentially the same thing. I mean, the majority of thought is as they're getting into lift or into movement, the first move is linear. You're creating some direction. Then you're creating a rotational load around it and into your turn, but you're resisting rotation, not to over rotate too much. Now as a thrower, you can over rotate. You can rotate a little bit more simply because I'm not having to track anything as well as much with my eyes. Like I can turn my eyes a little bit away from the target and still be able to deliver the ball without having to react to something already coming at you. But the same thing, then it's going to be a rotation of the body, which is going to be then uh, met with a, a firm deceleration or slowing down to basically get the arm to be moving essentially linear. And is that uh, the front leg bracing? Yeah, that's the, it's the front leg, leg bracing, but it's also the torso bracing. I mean, the, okay. the, the front leg brace, I think, in throwing <clears throat> is, has been probably misconstrued for a while because it's just it's verbiage again. It's like the front leg, oh, the front leg's got a brace. But the front leg is going to have a hard time bracing if the pelvis is in a poor position to allow it to brace. So essentially imagine like if my hips were staying sideways, I know we're kind of taking this off track here a little bit, but if my hips were to stay sideways, my torso wouldn't be able to finish my throw. So basically imagine my hips, I'm a right-handed thrower, my hips are, my hips and my pelvis are facing third base. If I landed sideways like that, my torso would not be able to complete its turn around the corner because it would be limited to how far it can turn away from a pelvis facing the wrong way. So if I land and my pelvis is not in a good position to allow the torso to finish, then the front leg will move to allow the pelvis to keep rotating. Therefore, oh, making wait, it very- Wait, 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 wait. I mean, I don't land closed? Yeah, I mean, if your range of motion if your range of motion allows for it in your leg, not in your foot or not in, no, sorry, not in your leg, not in your pelvis. So that I always say like, when I work with guys as throwers, like a lot of times what we'll do is I'll have them start with both feet facing forward. So basically imagine like your landing position, your feet are in a straight line or relatively straight line. Um, and both feet are facing forward. Your pelvis in that, in that version would be basically facing forward. Then what I'll have them do is I'll stabilize their hips and their pelvis for them. And I'll have them just counter rotate their torso back as far as they can. Well, most of them are only going to get partially turned back because the pelvis is holding open. So then what I do is I basically rotate them back just far enough, essentially where they can get their shoulders closed and the pelvis will have to rotate back a little bit with that to allow that range of motion, depending on how much thoracic mobility and stuff they have. 
And I tell them, this is basically the position you're going to have to land in then. So basically you're trying to land in a position where your pelvis is as, as far through its process as need be that the torso can basically take over from there. That almost like you're landing and the lower half is just done. And now it's the upper half's job. It's not the lower half's job to keep trying to turn you through that position. It's simply to get you into a position where you can stop or have the ability to stop more rapidly. Um, so hitting, I guess that's, you know, kind of what we end up doing when we get guys that don't operate well through the pelvis is we tend to close them off a little bit, like guys that over rotate um, that can't get into their upper half quick enough. You close them off so they can decelerate faster um, naturally, basically putting the pelvis in a better position to like offset that. <clears throat> so um, as a, as a hitter, um, I think, you know, one of the big issues then becomes when you're trying to move through those categories is the timing of those movements, which I also think then becomes a very important topic to talk about. Cause I feel like timing is still always how are we doing it with the pitch versus timing of actual movements of the body? Like how do we, how do we time out accelerating one piece so that the other piece essentially would decelerate as well. Cause the other piece isn't going to decelerate naturally unless there's something above it that wants to move. Wouldn't you just call that sequencing or syncing up? Yes. yes. Which is what resist in my mind, in my mind still, like I think of, I think of all your loading mechanisms. <clears throat> I mean, like as I'm advancing forward is I'm just setting myself up for sequence. So yeah, I, think, you know, I, say, I say the same thing. You have to load in a sequence to be able to do the same thing in the output of your swing. Yeah, we're like, I think you know, like it literally starts when I'm in rhythm. In my mind, I am already starting the sequence. Right. So I think that's where a lot of people miss out on stuff like that, too, is that they're just trying to hit positions. Yeah. Like, okay, oh, I, gotta get I think the failure in teaching that is we try to put people in positions. Right. Like, oh, I got to get, I've got to be able to get. It doesn't work. It's a flow, man. It's a constant flow of energy. Right. And at a young age, especially, like a lot of times when it looks like kids can't get in and out of those positions, we put them in stationary positions. Yeah, like, get here, Johnny. It's, <laughs> it's, so, work, dude. it's such a bad, it's such a bad feel for most people because you're never going to do it stationary in a game. Then what no. you do is you get a lot of people that like start super late and they just try to jam to a position. I, I've done it as a, versus a, having a, a flow. coach. I've done it. Oh, um, of it. And I think the guilty piece of it is I feel like I'm quantifying them understanding. It's like, you need to get to this position. Do you understand that? Yes, I understand it. I know what you're asking me to do, but this drill isn't helping me do it. I think that's the failure in it. And we feel good as coaches. Well, I told you how to do it. I showed you how to do it. You just can't do it. Yeah. And that's tough. Like, that's one of those learning moments, too. It's like you're just trying to get somebody to understand something. And sometimes the easiest way to feel like you're doing is by having, like, a still picture or like a stop spot, like, see, do you feel this spot? We got to get to that spot. Oh, but the problem is like, you only have one moment in time that you're really supposed to be at that spot. Yeah, it's just going to kind of blow the that moment. Worst thing in the history of instruction. So getting back to the it's original linear versus rotational, in your mind, what are the problems or issues that arise from trying to be too much of one or the other? So if I'm trying to be too rotational, like I'm just simply thinking rotational or I'm th simply thinking linear. Okay. For 
for hitters that are simply rotational, they don't decel well. They're spinning top. The barrel, which is always going to be in some sort of an ellipse, a semicircle arc of somebody I imagine being very rotational, that arc is very U-shaped. And I want this semicircle to be very elongated. And I'm, t- I'm thinking like if you're filming overhead and I'm looking down on that hitter, I'm looking at their path. And I want that to be, we know it's going to have some sort of curvature to it, but I want to minimize as much curvature as possible. So again, by, I'm distance in the zone. And by that, yeah, I was going to say, and by that, meaning like the barrel is able to stay essentially in a hitting zone for a yep. longer period of time. In, in a linear hitter, um, I feel like you end up creating a poor, you end up doing the exact opposite of what you're achieving to do. And here's what I mean by that. Somebody that's purely thinking I'm a, in a linear fashion. I'm trying to take my hands forward, keep them tight to my body and create that distance in the zone. You can do that with just a, a push pattern or closing off my front side, pushing the hands, albeit you're probably going to be extremely limited in how fast or hard you're delivering the barrel. But the bigger problem in my mind comes of the lack of space you create that way. Part of the reason for the turn is to create a very unobstructed path for my hands, arms, and barrel to get to the ball without anything blocking it. And sometimes when we go into that linear fashion where I'm going to stay extremely closed or block myself off and try to take my hands in a direct line, you simply can't do it because you're obstructed by your front side. So I end up having to swing around my front side and achieving the exact opposite of what I was trying to do in a linear path. So linear, linear, earlier, linear longer. So thinking linear more with hands and bat in essence, then would lead to the bat being more rotational. And Could, You run out of space. Oh, you're, you're obstructed. Yeah. That, that would be my two of the, the two extremes. I think there was one time at the ABCA years ago. No, I think it was at the, the Fast Pitch Conference that Epstein and Don Slott, I believe, from Right View Pro got in a debate on linear versus rotational. And it was like, I've seen it on video since then. And it was just like going around. It, it was basically the, every Twitter debate you see today, just carried out in real time. So it, it, as we've said this on the show before, as politics via social media allows you, or just media in general, allows you to be in any camp that you choose to be in and be very comfortable in it because you hear the voice you want to hear, Hitting camps are the same way. These marketing terms are the same way. Whatever camp that you believe in, in hitting, you can find on social media and be very comfortable in your camp and, and, dis, and shun everything else that's not in your camp. And it's really, it's really frightening um, in terms of like the quality of instruction that, that like, as you, you and I have said for years, that there is no one camp or way to do anything in this game. It's finding the camp that best fits your movement profile. So uh, subjecting yourself to like one way of doing anything or teaching anything is like, oh man, this is, that's why I call it the dumpster fire. The dumpster fire of Twitter. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's, it's, it, and then it's just Twitter, just social media in general. Like it, it, the, the exact same things that are happening to our country are <laughs> to a much smaller scale and degree happening to baseball instruction because 
you can find any voice and any outlet you want to and and be siloed in that and <clears throat> fairly ignorant to exploring other ideas that you may make you think a different way so how much do you how much would you attribute something like that to to somebody trying to make their own niche and like stick to their oh yeah i, I think a lot I, I think that's um i, I we've had this conversation before I, I, the ebb and flow of the game and I, I recall interviewing for for different teams and there was a time where social media was so self-promoting that anybody with content was getting interviewed by a professional team for the fact that I think professional baseball as an industry understood that there are other other resources out there that maybe weren't being explored at the time. But you and I, when we saw some, some of the names that were getting hired, we're like, oh man, this isn't going to go well. And we're, our names are lumped in with that, that crew. And I said, what's going to happen is there's some of these people that just are probably a better fit for a facility than professional baseball. And it's just not going to work. And then what it's going to do, it's going to give everybody in that camp a bad name. And then people in, in the game are going to go, see, we told you you shouldn't hire those nerds. They don't know anything about baseball. And that's like, the, and that's exactly in my mind, what, what's going to happen in the, you know, the ebb and flow of everything in the game is cyclical. And that's, but I, I think that social media, you can, you can make yourself into any product that you want to do. And it, it, a lot of it is selling yourself and selling your product. Um, developing your niche if you want to say that that that's part of the the tribalism of it really like because you can find your niche and be in that camp and yeah and I, I, would say, tribe. I would say now like watching it now you know i think because it's 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 grown so much more than it even was you know last year versus the year before because there's more and more people on it more and more people are are noticing and realizing that there is opportunities on social media um, to be able to put your stuff out there and, ha and be heard for good or bad, like just to be heard, to have, to be seen. Um, you know, I think one of the things I think that probably was one of the biggest changers in my mind was, you know, watching, watching guys do day to day when it comes to the difference between like a facility and, and pro baseball of guys doing day-to-day -day work with players and then listening to coaches um, in an affiliated setting uh, talk to players. And one of the, one of the biggest, one of the biggest ones I think was, you know, you had a, a big leaguer in and the guy you've been working with for a while uh, with a different org that, you've been with for a while anyways and you were doing a um almost like season ending exit kind of interview and that's quite important with those guys at the end of every season of just doing a review of what worked what didn't what's the game plan for the offseason but i i sat there as like a, a fly on the wall while you did it um right over your shoulder just kind of listening in and in my mind, it was like, wow, like just like 
the difference in what it takes to humanize what we do versus to mechanize, I guess is a good way to say like the, the mechanics of like, all right, here's how to, we got to cut down time to impact and we're going to do that by X, Y, and Z. And we're going to do med ball throws for this. And we're going to do this for that and yada, yada. But like the humanization of it, I think is such a huge part. And I think that's where when you get into like social media, you get, you get this feel of like, okay, this person is talking about some mechanics, but you know, for a lot of those people that are trying to get into probably an affiliated setting at some point, understanding like the humanizing of how I'm actually talking to a player, not just like, Oh, I can talk to people like to actually, you know, understand and take the time to, to go through that part with them and become such a big thing. So I think, think that is just people skills though. I mean, I think the best coaches have really good, I, I don't, have two, two qualities. When I say people skills, the ability to adapt to a lot of different personalities and immediately know how to reach. And sometimes that takes some probing. But two, a really big one that I think goes overlooked and gets lost in objectifying everything we try to do in baseball is just empathy. Like be, being in that player's shoes and knowing what, like they're, this is their fucking living, man. Like they are living they're living every day if that makes sense like their their job is on the line every time they step in the batter's box and if you don't appreciate that from being on the outside where yeah there's pressure on an instructor in terms of you can get fired as a coach or you just don't have any business as a private instructor but you better have some empathy of feeling that right along with them versus saying well didn't work out for you it wasn't my fault right like you got to be if you're not invested in your players and, and feel what they feel I think empathy is a very overlooked piece of coaching. I think, I think too, I think most people that would listen to anything, they're going to be like, Oh, you know, I feel like I, I would have that. And I could, I don't think like it's, it's very understated what those qualities are and to actually be very good at those qualities. Like it's, it's completely different to be like, Oh, well that makes sense. I understand what Justin is saying there about having empathy and, and, you know, everything else for players and, you know, being able to know what to say and when to say. that is so much harder than people think, because when you, when you come from the private side, especially, and you're used to just telling people for the most part, what they need to hear, like they're coming in, they're, they're needing your time to move the needle for that day and give them a better idea of what to do for the, the time to come is that you're kind of going through that. And there's less, there's less time, a lot of times to humanize that like, Hey man, what's going on in your life today? How's everything going? You know what I mean? Like they have a bad day. They come in and they have a bad day in the cage, like a young kid. And you're just like, man, they're just not, they're not focused today. They're not, they're not trying today. They're not, they're not putting in effort and reality wise, like they might've just had the worst day of school in their life. It yeah. In a half hour, you're moving on to the next guy as an instructor. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's and like, you, time I, over. I shift my focus. And you might not get that kid back for a week or two weeks, you know, where when you're in affiliated, like you're literally, you're with those dudes every day. It's like, Hey, every day we're here together. Like what's going on, man? Like you have time to have, you have a little bit more time to have some of those conversations. You have a little bit more time to kind of know, you know, who they are. You know, you see them, you know, six days a week. You know, we see kids that come in on the private side one day a week, maybe one day every two weeks, depending on, you know, what their timetable is for coming in. And so I think, you know, for a lot of people out there, you know, when you, if you're, if you're doing social media as a way, cause honestly, I, 
I had a conversation with somebody the other day that was asking me a question about um, getting his kid into um, kind of like the strength and conditioning side of like an affiliated sport. Like, you know, what would it take? What would be a good route to go? And one of the things I said, as I said, honestly, like, you know, find an internship, one, with somebody that's in the field you want to be in, two, you know, start doing your own kind of research and your own kind of, you know, writing your own programs and stuff like that. And I said, then three, like when you're comfortable with that and you feel like you've got some good information, put it out on social media, because if you do that well and you have the ability to look like you're trying to develop and grow and you're not just like one track minded, social media can be a great way to still get, get your information out there, get your name out there. But I think so many people go, so hardcore one way that if you were going to then go into an affiliated situation, you're going to have a really hard time fitting in when you're so polarized in how you're portraying your information, how you want that information portrayed versus, wow, this guy could be a system guy. Like this guy could fit our system because he's a learner. He's a thinker, but he's also like, he's not afraid to pivot when needed. He's not afraid to show different sides. It's not just this, I'm down this one lane and that's what it is. And if it's not that, then everybody else is wrong. You know, is that over marketing? Can you over market yourself? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, I think there's just certain people that don't have that filter of understanding that there's just multiple personalities and multiple types of people. And you can't just sit and go, this is it. What's up? Like, that's just, but I think there's a lot of people that do that and they don't have that. I I don't think they're doing it out of just like, Hey, I have to do this because this is how, this is how I'm going to make, money i think it's more they don't have the filter to understand that we're human beings yeah and we all have what you started this conversation off with yeah yeah and that's even kind of going back like that's the reason i only want to talk about that a little bit too is it's like the, the yin and yang of things like the yin and yang of of linear versus rotational the there is there is as much as we say that social media is a dumpster fire there's a lot man i still like i'm on i go on every day and i scroll through and i there's, there's, there's definitely people that I will seek out a little bit more. Like, what do they, what do they have today? Or do they put anything out today? Or do they got anything for me today? And, you know, just be like, Oh, well, that I like that. And a lot of it is a lot of it's movement stuff. Honestly, like I, I would say probably, probably half of my feed of people that I follow are strength and conditioning movement kind of people. And the other half are probably, you know, baseball people um and not that baseball people don't do movement stuff. well and i'm just saying not that, that baseball people don't do movement stuff but but i think you know now it's like because of social media there are people out there that are doing more that aren't saying hey these this is like the only exercises you can do for this or hey let's you know we, I, I don't even know that anybody ever talked about even what the pelvis was and the pelvis's responsibility in movement when i was playing not that it would have changed much of what i thought of but like for me personally it's easier for me to feel out my pelvis than it is for me to feel out what my hips are doing like I feel like it's harder for me to kind of because my hips there's because there's one on each side it's so much harder for me to feel kind of like how that relationship works where if I'm thinking about the middle and how the middle moves both sides for me it's just way easier to think about but I never thought about it because all we ever heard was hips 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 and it just made power of cues right yeah, it just resonates better for me thinking about pelvis. And some of my kids not because they're like, they don't understand kind of the, you know, 
they're younger. Yeah. For a minute, the, the cues piece of it, um, because as humans, as coaches, we tend to get fixed on cues that we like. It's it's just human nature. Like you you describe things the way you describe them. It's like your individual handwriting or the way you say sorry. <laughs> um, but I think it's important to ask the player to identify their own cues, meaning I liked what you did right there. What were you thinking or feeling? Once you get an answer, and it also forces them to articulate something that's very complex, the movement is very complex, and that helps them think through it too. So once they articulate that, now as the coach, that is my cue for that player. So we have to remember all these different cues, which are going to be different for each individual, because it's their feel. It's their cue. It's not mine as the coach. It doesn't matter what way I explain things if it doesn't resonate with the player. The player has to identify, first understand, there's some aptitude and comprehension that goes in that, of telling me what to cue them with. Because cues can be very dangerous if misconstrued. Hundred percent. I think, you know, again, I think that's one of the toughest things, you know, let's say on the private side, especially probably knowing that, you know, I'm going to have, I don't even know, let me think 50, I'm going to have 50, 55 kids a week um, that are coming through and having to remember every one of their essential like cues and you know where they're at from a learning standpoint like what do they need do they need more like hands-on do they need more visual do they need more you know so it's like that is the toughest part and i think for a lot of for a lot of people like i'm self-admitted like i'm terrible with names like kids will come in and sometimes like, oh, yeah i'm like what i'm like i've had this kid for a year i'm like god i can't remember his name right now but if you ask me what we did in the last four sessions over the course of last month, I would be able to tell you every time. And the kid comes in, I'd be like, hey, so did you get your work in this week? Like, ah. Uh, and it's I'm bad like, that we remember better than they do. Like, well, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but, but, but like I said, in the, in the same regard, like I feel bad sometimes because kids come in, I'm like, oh, shoot, man. Like, what's, uh, what's this kid's name? But I'll be like, all right, last week, here's what we did. And you were feeling, you said you were feeling this. Did you get a chance to kind of feel that out this week? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. For, you know, I forgot we worked on that. And I'll be like, okay. Like you only got to remember your feels. I got to remember everybody else's feels and cues. Like you only got to remember yours. But like I said, there's give and take because it's like my brain has now been put into a position where it finds more value in remembering those things. than it does some of the other things, like I said, like, like a name, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, 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 it happened to me a couple times in spring training last year at the games. I would run into somebody from Chicago that I was teaching probably in like the White Sox Academy days. And now they're, they're you know, grown up. Um, in fact, you and I ran into one of them at the, uh, the, the golf event. Was that the waste management golf thing? Yeah. And no idea what the kid's name was, but I remembered his movement patterns from like 10 years ago. I was like, oh, over-rotated the back, the back foot, over-rotated the back side, spun off. Uh, I was like, man, I remember... Remember you distinctly, I just have no idea what your name is. Yeah. This a, what our, not, not that our brain doesn't value somebody's name. That's a very important piece, but what they, that's being invested in you wanting to make the player better, that you have that detailed of a memory of the way they moved 10 years ago. 
So what, what else do you have out there that's like cues, you know, like a linear rotational or a whatever other kind of like hands versus no hands or, you know, swing down, swing up. I mean, whatever, like what, what other, what other in your mind, what other ones are there that there's like, Hey, this goes kind of both ways. You have anything else in mind? Yeah, I have, I have, I have one of the ones. You're luring me into something, but I think the swing down thing up is exactly like the uh, linear to rotational. And I'll, I'll explain it briefly before you go into yours. So this is the exact same parallel is linear versus rotational. Our hands start at the, the top or above the strike zone in most cases. And the swing plane is an arc. So it's a complete cylinder circle. Attack angle, that's the, the measurement of the bat as it's coming through the zone, is always changing. And the attack angle of the bat initially should be a downward steep motion to enter the zone above the ball. And that will limit your time to contact and that, that's really quantifying what a short swing is. Now there's a, there's a tribe out there that doesn't believe that. That's very anti short down to the ball, um, release the barrel behind you. And, and maybe they teach it a different way, I don't know, but it seems counterintuitive to what I'm talking about. But at some point, my posture then, from this short, steep descent into the zone, my posture of my torso is going to begin to turn the barrel under the ball. The amount of turn or side bend or inside shoulder tilt will affect how steep of an increase I'm going to get in that attack angle. So we have the downward portion, I'm turning under the ball and I'm creating an uptick in my swing. It's going upwards now. That will help uh, match the, the, the pitch plane, but it, it also helps us to attack the middle to slightly under center piece of the ball and hit line drives and hit the ball with uh, backspin. So there is a downward portion of the swing and there's an upward portion of the swing where you make contact with the ball has a lot to do with what that attack angle is at contact. If I'm con consistently late, that attack angle is going to be very minimal. It could even be negative if I'm really, really late. If I catch the ball further out in front, my attack angles might be in the high teens or even into the twenties because my timing was so far out front, the barrel is rising in its arc. So swinging down or swinging up happens really in every swing, unless you continue that short, steep decline and don't turn your torso under the ball, I'm going to have a negative attack angle all the way through the ball, which means you're likely going to cut the ball, which you have a very small interset intersection where you can make contact solid. So we're going to have high spin hits. You're going to cut it down. You're going to hit the top of the ball and hit a ground ball. Um, but the same thing, if I say, I just want to get, swing up, I want to hit the ball in the air, and I dump my posture early prior to having that short, steep descent into the zone, then I get uphill too soon, and I create too positive of attack angle, and the same thing happens. I'm too uphill to the pitch plane. I have a very small intersecting zone, and you're going to miss hit a lot of balls with high spin if you hit it at all. So there's a downward portion of the swing. Depending on where I hit the balls, how positive my attack angle is going to be. So again, it's it's both. It's a, in my mind, a, a ridiculous debate, unless you're falling into a camp 
that is polarized to one side or the other. Now you got to be short and you got to get on top of the ball and you just swing down all the way through the zone. Or no, you got to get the ball in the air. So I'm going to try to create artificial launch angle by dropping my back shoulder and swinging straight up and see those ridiculous videos on Twitter where guys are leaning backwards and swinging like 30 degree attack angles. Like you're polarized on one side or the other, brother, you're lost anyway. But as everything in life, it probably truth lies in the middle. Well, and that's that's actually kind of the debate I wanted to have just on that, because in my mind, I've, I've always like when, when we first started, like, because like I probably didn't see the whole picture as well as I do now. And obviously I still don't have the whole picture. I'm never, like you said, we're never gonna know it all, but like knowing now what I know and like trying to learn more, you know, early on, it was like, it had to be more or less one or the other. It was either like, you're thinking this way or you're thinking this way. And when, in reality, like when you watch people move, like the only ways that you could keep essentially a downward plane for the existence of your swing would be to either A, stay in an upright or positive posture and or you'd have to disconnect and basically just let your arms fall away from your posture. That if you stayed in a connected posture, and again, this is going to be more for people, I guess, that can see what's happening versus listening. But if I'm, if I'm turning, and even if I'm thinking down, my hands are going this way across my body, it's really my body, me keeping my hands moving in the same direction across my body, my body turning, that gets me back behind the ball. It's not me going one way and then trying to then turn the other way. It's that downward directional feel towards the direction of where the ball is. And then as my body does turn behind, my hands are still working the same line across my body for the most part. And my body is just changing directions to keep that arc moving the same direction. And so you get the downward feel, you get that short portion of the flat feel and you get that portion of the upward feel. And in that regard, then it's just a matter of where you hit the ball. If I hit the ball deeper, I'm going to be a little bit more in the downward portion of my move yet or the beginning of the underturn i'm going to be hitting harder ground balls so i'm going to square the ball up directionally more downward if i'm catching it somewhere in the middle my look my flight's going to be a little bit lower if i catch it a little bit farther in front my flight's going to be a little bit higher and that goes into the whole debate of you know when you're going to take a chance on a pitch so if you want to if you want to elevate a ball you're going to have to catch it farther out in that arc where you've got a little bit more of a positive position which takes time to get to yeah because it's not back here, it's it's going to be way out here where I'm positive. But to do that, I've got to take a chance. I've got to take a you know I've got to I've got to assume I'm getting a fastball or a certain pitch. I've got to be able to commit to it a little bit sooner because it does take time to get out there to get to that higher loft. Which is why for a lot of people, it's tough to do that because they they take those chances, they make bad decisions, they're swinging at bad pitches. Then mid pitch, they're having to basically just you know have a compensating move of like, oh crap, I'm in the wrong position or I chose the wrong pitch, disconnect, go get the ball. And then a lot of times what happens is they end up flattening out or, or keeping a flatter path through the zone and they end up clipping the ball and the ball goes up. And then a coach goes, hey, you're getting under the ball. And in reality, like it was because they disconnected and the barrel kept going down and they just weren't in the right place at the right time. Now, yeah, I could catch it at the right spot there and still do, do a little bit of damage with it. But that's that that zone is so small for you to actually square a ball out that it's it's you're, you're going to be way you're not going to be successful enough. And it's going to look like anytime you pop the ball up, it's like, oh, you're popping up. That means you're 
you're you're under the ball too much. And I'm like, you know, if you watch most, like even in the big leagues, like most pop-ups are more of a timing issue than they are anything else or a disconnect because those guys are so nasty that they're, you know, committing early to a pitch and the pitch all of a sudden moves and they're, they're having to do anything they can to survive on that pitch. And a lot of times that's disconnecting the swing, throwing the barrel away from the body, barrel control, timing goes out the window at that point and you're just hoping to survive versus like, I'm really going to try to ex- to excel in this swing. And that's, you know, what Andy would call like, it's, it's dirty. Like it's a dirty game. Like you get up there, like half your at bats are trying to survive maybe maybe two-thirds of your bats are trying to survive and the other third you get your pitch and you can do a little bit more damage you know and you're, you're hoping you get your you're hoping you're getting most of those balls hit hard and play because that's where you're going to survive and you're going to grind out enough to to be a good hitter not the one you were thinking of the same one swing down yeah two. and it, it came it, it, you know part of it is like the same thought of like where direction like what are we trying to do are we trying to get behind the ball early or we're trying to get behind the ball in front, you know, and a lot of that too is a lot of that too is player styles. Like you're going to see guys that have a very steep entry early to get to the ball sooner. So essentially they can work more out in front. So they're trying to get that direction as soon as they can so that they can have time to turn out front and make decisions that way they can decide later because it takes them less time. And you get some guys that'll commit deeper in the zone and for some guys that works as long as it's not too extreme that way, that they're just yeah. getting behind the ball a little bit earlier, which means that, you know, in their mind, they can make a decision a little bit later because even if they're behind the ball and they're making that decision later, they can still hit the ball the opposite field easier. Yeah. So and I think there's a bat deeper into the zone. Yeah. So there's that. I think there's value in both. But again, it's like you got to match up to the guy, right? What you got to like, what, you got to ask the guy, like, what are you trying to do? Like, if you're, if you're, you're trying to, if you're trying to be a pull side, in the air guy, like you're going to have to directionally probably be a little bit better because you're going to need that extra time to track that pitch and get there in a short, abrupt time where if you're trying to be more of an opposite field approach, yeah, you can get in the zone a little bit deeper because even if you back up the ball, you can back it up and hit it the other way a little bit easier, even though it's going to, your time to impact might be, you know, slightly, what would be slightly higher. I mean, with obviously with a, with a bat sensor or whatever else, it's sometimes hard to manage just because, I think a lot of times when people just look at time to impact on like a, like a, like a, a bat sensor, you're not realizing you have to also take into account where you're hitting the ball. Yeah. Like if I'm starting my swing now and I hit the ball in front of me, it's obviously going to take more time to cover that ground than if I start my swing here and I hit the ball here, my time to impact is going to look great, but I might hit a foul ball. Like, Oh, this guy's time to impact is 0.10. You know like, uh, yeah, he hit the ball in the dugout because he hit it so deep. He, he didn't have enough time to move. It didn't take long. Yeah, usually when you pair up those type of numbers with each other, it tells the story of where contact was made. You know, like, oh, your time to impact was 0.12, but your attack angle was negative six. Yeah, and you hit the ball, and you hit the ball off your back hit. Yeah, yeah I think what, the way to sum up today's show is that so much of this is just individualized. Like, they're, even the way we think about – what we teach has to be unique to the player, not standardized for us, not comfortable for the coach. It's not, I say it this way, therefore you should think it this way. It's <laughs> how can I get you to think along with me, but put it in your own words. And that goes from the marketing terms of down, up, linear, rotational, cues, etc. I always like to finish the show with one of my new favorite segments of don't be that, that guy. Don't be that guy. 
Travis, what do you got today? Yeah, so um, don't be that guy. Um, don't go. <laughs> don't go on social media and try to down talk a professional player <laughs> by say, by saying that they don't move correctly to survive at the highest level. Um, that's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and to, to understand that somebody would actually, in my mind, that somebody would actually go online and be like, this guy's not going to survive because this move right here. When in reality, what we just talked about, and there's, there's, there's a video context out there for anybody that wants to look, I'm not going to even tell you where to look, but the side-by-side -side video is still is still relatively the same move between both players one of them is just tilted over when they begin their move and the other one is in an upright position because the pitch the pitch heights are completely different and what the what the posture of the torso looks like leaning over to a low pitch like if i'm leaning over to a low pitch my first move going across my body is going to look like it's more this way if i'm upright that move is going to look more yeah. like it's this way those are those are a, semi-similar move on two different pitch heights in two different postures. But to call somebody out that you don't personally know that that's never given beef to you and basically just like insinuate that you're not going to make it is just don't be that guy. Don't you think people do that kind of stuff or just clickbait? Like, like I feel like it's the old, uh, well, I mean, choose your polarizing celebrity. I, used to hear and this shows my age but 15 20 years ago paris hilton used to be in the news all the time yeah who thought i was bringing paris hilton into the show producer dan used to be in the news all the time and it was all like negative publicity like she was famous for being a a, a, a fuck up more or less right but don't you think like somebody can make their name off of just being a, a dick you know of like creating clickbait and that drives it and maybe in their mind it maybe it does drive people business i don't know like i, I mean know. if you if you're thinking if you're thinking that people are smart enough to just be like listen i'm gonna try to just piss everybody off to do what i need to do then that person probably needs As dale carney would say that's not the way to win friends and influence people yeah like who's that, thought that producer dan that i'd bring dale carnegie in this same paragraph as paris hilton in today's show what was, yeah, what was, was uh, here Lead baseball. Oh, Nicole, Nicole Richie. Yeah, another, another good example. Yeah. yeah. Well, she was Paris Hilton's friend. Yeah. I think they even had a reality show. They did. You and I should have a reality show. I think they lived on a farm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that being said, I'm gonna go uh, work with some players swinging down and swinging up. Well, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. All right. We'll see you guys. Peace out, boys.